0: We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. This is our fifth event on quantum computing, and I'm joined today by Ryan Hagman, who's a technology policy executive, IBM, previously a senior fellow with the International Center for Law and Economics. His work focuses on the regulatory governance of emerging technologies like quantum and other issues on the intersection of technology regulation and the digital economy, which are all topics close to my heart and we will definitely touch on them. Uh, We've been talking to Dr. Zaira Nazirio, who is in the Theory, Algorithms, and Applications technical lead in IBM Quantum and manages a global R&D portfolio. And someone I'm always happy to have you on on to to discuss because we were having a good conversation beforehand. But with that, the format will be, I will ask you some questions. Let's start with uh, sort of a general question to help frame this for the audience. Tell us about the status of quantum computing. Where where does it stand now? And Zara and I were talking beforehand about how you'd asked us two or three years ago, we would not think we would be at the point we are now. So what's the status for quantum computing?
1: You know, we we were mentioning this earlier. I think it's, it's amazing the amount of progress that has happened over the last decade, right? You know, about if you think about where we were about 10 years ago, we were basically like dealing with probably like, you know, two qubits, gates between two qubits isolated. We were using chips that were wire bonded by hands that were not reproducible at all. And now fast forward 10 years to today, and we have, you know, systems like our IBM system one. Which it was the first time that quantum computing was taken out of the lab and fully integrated into a commercial system, you know, that physically deployable that, you know, we recently unveiled in Germany. Soon also, you will see it in Japan. So it's, you know, th- there's been a lot of um, rapid progress. We're at the level of, of systems that are about 65 qubits, is our largest system. This year, we will. Release what we call Eagle. It's a system with 127 qubits. And we released our hardware roadmap last year where we laid out like what is, you know, the the systems and the progress over the next few years under 2023. Eagle this year, then we moved to Osprey next year with 433 qubits. 2023, we're going to see systems that are about like a thousand qubits or so with Condor. So a lot of uh, movements in terms and a lot of research in terms of improving electronics that are used to control those qubits of, you know, like how do we develop all the technology that is needed, packaging and so on to go um, from this small systems that we have today to system with a thousand qubits and, you know, how to establish those partnerships also with academia, with government that are necessary to go beyond to millions of qubits, which will require then a you know, new infrastructure. In terms of the software, we, you know, we also released our roadmap to develop the software uh, that would be necessary to exploit the benefits of those machines. We're seeing the evolution from having to know a lot about circuits and gates and qubits and all that to manipulate things at the level of the microwave pulses that go to the qubits, to abstract all that, because we want to make sure that users do not have to learn all those things, right, to be able to use a quantum computer. So, what we've been working on is providing tools for increasingly those what we call higher levels of abstraction, doing um, uh, enabling application modules, so that somebody that is a classical developer and wants to solve a problem in say material simulation or optimization or machine learning can just go use that module in the programming language that they're used to, you know, they're familiar with, and benefit from the quantum algorithms uh, in their workflows.
0: Ryan, maybe a question then for you, which is this has, at least for me, come upon us sooner than we might expect. What does that do for creating policy challenges for governments? And what would the policy challenges be now and in the near future, right? so. What's, what's the, the menu of issues that you're looking at?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, great question. And I think, you know, had you asked me that question maybe a couple of years ago, I think the first challenge that we would have identified that needed to be rectified from a government and a policy perspective would have been the lack of a concerted whole of government framework and approach to addressing the development of quantum information science and quantum information systems. That actually changed in 2018. However, when Congress passed and President Trump signed into law the National Quantum Initiative Act, which does create that first overarching government framework for uh, how the government actually approaches things like R&D investment in quantum science and how it manages and coordinates priorities for those investments across multiple agencies. So, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, the National Institute of Standards and Technology are kind of leading on that whole of government approach, but it's also roping in a lot of other agencies, specifically from uh, the defense sector because of you know, some of the you know, national security implications of the development of quantum computers. So you have something about, I wanna say it's close to about two dozen different federal agencies that are actually involved in that effort. And so over the last couple of years, I think we've actually surmounted one of the you know, biggest hurdles that previously we had seen in advancing, you know, the United States' policy towards quantum computers and, and quantum information science, there are still other challenges out there. However, as uh, you know, as Aira, uh, mentioned, I think previously when we were just casually chatting, one of the things that is a tricky subject that we're still trying to address is opening the aperture of the talent pipeline in quantum information science, mm-hmm. right? I, I use sometimes artificial intelligence as a comparison here. There are very few, uh, you know, truly qualified uh, AI scientists out there in the world, right? And when you imagine, you know, how few AI specialists there are, despite the fact that AI is such a major topic of conversation and a priority investment for a lot of industries these days, its order of magnitudes lower, even for for quantum information science. So, actually, promoting educational pathways for more individuals to develop the skills and the talents necessary that we need to continue to advance American interest and leadership in quantum science is probably still one of the biggest challenges, one of the trickiest public policy challenges that we continue to need to confront and to prioritize.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to the talent question because uh, it's an important one. But some of the things you said and some of the things Zira said, this is a question you can both take. But one of the comparisons I always think is where we are in terms of Development, deployment, use, and policy for artificial intelligence, and where we are in terms of quantum. So, if you were going to put them side by side, what would you say? AI a little further along, a little easier to do, a lot more money, or or is it roughly comparable? Is that even a fair question? And it starts out when you have the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. We put a lot of effort into it. What does it look like, both from a research perspective and from a policy perspective? Is it roughly the same? Should it be the same?
2: From a policy
0: perspective,
2: I would metaphor, I would say, from an AI perspective, we're maybe in the elementary school years. And with uh, quantum, we're, we're probably in the, uh, at most, the toddler stages, right? So a, a long way to go for both. But I, I don't think that it's unfair to use the two as comparisons because they're both leading edge emerging technologies that have huge implications for the U.S.'s continued, you know, competitive advantage in the world, so that's that's kind of how I would think of it. If we're thinking of them as as human beings growing up in the world, they're still young, um, but quantum is definitely much younger than AI. I
1: I agree with with Ryan. I would say uh, yes. I mean, there are still a there's still long ways to go, and there's a lot of research and innovations that still need to happen in both. But yes, I mean, there's been AI is a little bit more mature and it, it feels weird to use the word mature when they are both like right and say right emerging technologies that are, there's still so much work to do there's still quantum computing is still at an earlier even earlier stage than, than AI the challenges are also different because for quantum computing is, is' an entirely different infrastructure we're talking about you know a completely different model of computation and so it is not only the applications or use cases. It's also the new development of quantum algorithms, the development of the hardware, the development of the software. We have to work all the aspects on top of, of course, talent, which is applicable to both.
0: So where does talent fit into this? One of the strengths of the U.S. has always been you know, its openness to both recruiting foreign talent, but also working with partners internationally. So when you look at the talent perspective, what are the issues there that you worry about? I mean, there was a period where I was a little more worried that we were going to go all nationalistic on ourselves. That would be really damaging. But where are we now in terms of talent? Where are the places where you get the talent?
2: Yeah, I can I can hit this at a high level. I mean, the, the answer is the talent is where you find it, Right. <laughs> And I think there's oftentimes, I think, a perspective in some of these policy debates that we have everything that we need right here in the United States. And we just maybe need to, you know, as some of my friends are fond of saying, nerd a little bit harder on this issue. But the reality is a lot more complicated than that. Right. I and mean, there's talent all over the world. And to my previous point, the fact that we are already drawing from such a small pool of talent, globally makes it so much more important that we look at this through a global lens of talent acquisition. If you only have a small subset of the population overall that can work on these issues, then you want to make sure that you're drawing from as large a
0: pool as possible. Sayura, so where, where are you on talent? I mean, you used to go to a lot of conferences. None of us have been doing that recently, at least in physical terms. But what's, what's your sort of take on the globalization of talent and how the U.S. taps into that?
1: I, I want to echo pretty much everything that Ryan said, that this is one of the most important challenges that we face in education and, and workforce development. And if you think about why it matters, right, maybe to understand that, I, I should mention just look as, as Ryan said, first of all, look at the current workflow, workforce, and the scarcity of talent, um, particularly, you know, in, in, in areas like you know, quantum computing, for example, or emerging technologies. But also, if we look at the composition of our own workforce, right at IBM, about a quarter or so of our quantum computing talent is born outside of the U.S., including even a lot of the leaders that are driving our program. Right, so I mentioned this to you before. Talent is our most critical resource, and like Ryan said, we really need to expand the pool from which we derive that supply of challenge. I work—we're competing worldwide for the same limited pool, and there are opportunities here, there are opportunities in other places abroad. So it will become increasingly difficult to attract and retain highly skilled workers unless we make it a priority for us to excel at doing that.
0: So you can't have, you, you have to always have two words in any CSIS event. And one word is China. I'll save that for the end. The other word is security. So what are the implications that you see for quantum computing when it comes to security with both network security, which is a narrow focus, and also the larger national security issue. Where does quantum reshape the security equation?
1: Probably what is more, more on top of people's mind was the subject of your past um, podcast. Um, the fact that there are algorithms that we know, quantum algorithms, that are very, very efficient, like you know Shor's algorithm, yeah. that can break RSA encryption and ECC encryption, two of the most widely used protocols today. So that's that's a worry for people. You know, your guest um, last week mentioned, you know, the threat of that today is that if you have data that you want secure for decades to come, you're worried about that data being harvested today, stored, and wait until a large quantum computer comes online to be able to decrypt it. We're still... F- Long way, a long way from there. Quantum computer capable of breaking RSA twenty forty eight encryption, you know, requires thousands of qubits, over six thousand qubits. It requires close to three billion gates. So we're talking about if if we to put this in perspective, right? Like the best machines that we have today have an error of about one percent. So we need to get ten million times better than we are today in order to break encryption, and that will require a lot of things. It will require a combination of better devices. It will require the implementation of, of error correcting codes. And the most popular ones that we know today require way too many resources. So we need to find even like more efficient ways of doing that. So we're, we're a long ways from there. But that is one of the things that is on top of people's heads when they think about that. Now, of course, if we I always say, if we are developing a revolutionary technology, we're also responsible for mitigating the risk associated with it. And as you discussed in your podcast last week, there are solutions, right? Like We are developing these quantum safe encryption protocols or cryptography schemes so that you know, data can be migrated and they, it could be safe from the scenario that, that we've been discussing now.
0: I'm going to put you on the spot, though, and ask the question that begs to be asked, how long is long? Five years, 10 years? And we were talking about this at the beginning. The rate of change is much faster than we expected.
1: I think that given all the things that need to fall in place, we haven't even, not a single logical qubit has been demonstrated so far. And you will hear a lot of people like claiming that when I say a logical qubit, I, I don't mean a memory. One of the things that is necessary right, is being able to encode information in a collection of physical qubits, so that that information lives longer in that collection, which we call a logical qubit, than it would live in a single physical qubit alone. That's only one part of the equation, that's only a memory, that's useless unless you can do useful computation with it. So what really matters is your ability to do this at the level of circuits, error correct circuits, be able to do non-trivial gates with it. That's where most of the cost comes into play and that's the part that is really difficult. I would say that seeing a quantum computer capable of breaking encryption this decade is highly unlikely. I, I don't think it's a, it, it's within a decade.
0: Well, that's a relief. Brian, you look at sort of the, the broad national security picture, What what's your implications there? What's your views there the implications of quantum?
2: Yeah, it's both a simple answer, but also a very complicated answer, right? One can imagine a situation in which you know only the United States in an alternate history had access to classical computing, right? and the advantage that would give us over other countries that didn't have access to that type of technology, right. So if we use that as sort of a comparative model for thinking about the importance of quantum for national, you know not just national security but national competitiveness and you know how we actually lead and you know innovative developments moving forward in industry and the sciences, very important would be the short answer right the vectors along which it is important i think are a little bit harder to to suss out right but if you think of the value that quantum computers in the future would have for industry and in things like logistics and supply line optimization for example that also translates into military applications right um, so there's there's a lot of applications some of which i think we can't yet fully sort of articulate in a in a meaningful way. But over the course, I think of the next 10 years, some of the clear applications are going to become, or some of the applications there are going to become even clearer. Communications security is probably the big one that comes to mind. Something is sort of like a nearsighted goal that probably folks at, at DARPA and DOD are, are thinking about, especially in light of Chinese advancements in quantum secure communications that they've made over the last five years or so that seems to get most of the headline attention, but beyond that, I think a lot of the you know the applications may seem a little bit more benign, but have real clear benefits to basic operational operational utility for agents in the field and for you know military operations on the ground. So, short answer: a lot of things, some of which we can kind of identify now, and some of which I think will only become clear as the ecosystem here develops over the next couple of years and the next decade or so.
0: When you were Speaking, it made me think that a lot of the things you were talking about are like improvements in logistics. That's usually something we ascribe to artificial intelligence. And so you know, the overlap between uh, quantum powered artificial intelligence might But it sounds like it's a long way away, but that would give AI a lot more oomph. It already has some, but it, will it change it? Is it going to, is that what we should be waiting for? Is this the, what's the thing they call oh, the singularity, how could I forget? is when quantum and AI meet, do we get the singularity?
2: Yeah, I I guess I would say, you know, the singularity, I think, is far more focused on the AI event, more so than, you know, quantum. I mean, Zaire can correct me if I'm wrong on that. But yeah, my understanding of the singularity is more, you know, the, the point at which, you know, artificial intelligence advances to a stage of such super intelligence beyond which we can't fully comprehend what comes next in history. And it's. It's an interesting thought experiment if you're, if you're talking with a, you know Ray Kurzweil or, or someone like that. But for practical applications of the policy ground right now, I, I think, again, thinking about the elementary and toddler school ages of these technologies, you know, it's kind of like trying to forecast where they're going to be living in retirement at this point. So
1: Maybe I will bring it back to um, what, what do we know? How what do we have proof? Um, that we can do with quantum computing and AI that would provide an advantage, And, you know, if you think about some of the underlying physical principles underpinning quantum computing, it is uh, that you're using this space where qubits live. And this space is, by nature, is high-dimensional space. And if you think about what you do in most of the processes in, in machine learning, AI, what you do is you take, for example, classification. Right? You take your data, you map that data to higher dimensions, and then you try to uncover features of the data or separate it and classify it in that high dimension because it's easier to do. Um, because sometimes like, you cannot do it unless you move it to a, a high dimension. right? And so the space of the qubits gives you those higher dimensions naturally. So one of the things that we know we can do is improve kernel methods. This is the process that I described, the name for it is kernel methods. So we can improve that process um, with quantum computing. Uh, We can explore those spaces where you can reveal properties of the data that would be inaccessible otherwise. And then you can use that to achieve advantages in training AI models. And you know that if you can train the AI model better, you improve its accuracy you get better classification, better regression, and things like that. So that's, that's where that would fit in, where, where we have proof that we can achieve a, a quantum advantage in that area of quantum kernel methods. Then, you know, there are, Ryan mentioned other examples, you know, quantum, we know that we have um, algorithms that give you an exponential advantage for the simulation of materials, And in terms of national security, you can imagine that you would want materials that respond in certain ways or that are resistant to very adverse environments in which the military or like other, you know, know, defense operates. And so that can help you um, understand or develop better those materials or forms um, more efficient ways to store or transport energy at longer distances. So those are just a couple of examples. Right, where, we, where we expect quantum computing to have a big impact.
0: Great, thank you. Because one of the things I've been thinking about is we, there, there's a lot of changes going on. That's why I'm at a think tank. I can say things like that. But one of the people haven't necessarily accounted for the fact that 10 years from now, we're going to be in a very different economy. And it will be driven in good measure by digital technologies, whether it's the, the autonomous car or the improved energy or it's it's just a different and the the implications you know what if there's much less demand for oil right what if people are much quicker at solving medical issues so one of the things that we're we monkey with is uh genetic manipulation um and there's a lot of ethical issues with that much more than the things we deal with and so i guess i'm wondering Quantum really accelerates all these trends, or does it? Is quantum? We we're talking a different kind of computing, a different way of thinking. Does it accelerate all the trends we're seeing in digital technology?
1: Quantum computing is not um, It isn't. It, it's not the case that it will solve everything better. Right? Quantum computer <laughs> is is really good for very particular types of problems. You know, there are the problems that where the resources that you need to solve the problem classically, you know, either you know the memory or the time that you the mm-hmm. time that it takes you to find a solution, grows very fast, grows exponentially with the size of the problem. In those cases, there are quantum algorithms that that we have discovered that help address those more efficiently. Right? Where you don't have that. Scaling that is exponential Mm -hmm. with the size of the problem, but rather that the runtime scales um, with as as a small constant power of the size of the problem. Another thing that I should mention, because I find that is, uh, you know, it could be a misunderstanding, is that quantum computing probably will not be that helpful to you in big data problems. It's not about solving big data. Uh, Quantum computing is about finding those problems or if you will, like those parts of your problem that are particularly difficult in terms of computation for classical computers. That's where quantum computers excel.
0: Ryan, how does the policy environment change as we move? And it, it sounds like it'll be a while, but as we move from the focus on quantum being developing it to the focus being on the use of quantum, what, what does that say for what we'll need to regulate or think about for policies?
2: beyond these early stages it really becomes kind of a general forecast right um it's very difficult to regulate an application of a technology when it's not actually being used in that particular context 10 years ahead but you know one can imagine that if quantum computers are going to be used in say industries in the future that are already highly regulated one can imagine That at some point you know regulators may start looking at the technology more closely for those specific applications. Just hypothetically speaking, if you think in the future quantum models might be used in forecasting financial modeling, then you know maybe that has implications for the banking and the finance sector and who regulates and how they regulate. But I I think it's 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 notoriously difficult to sort of you know focus in on what exactly rules and regulations might be in the future. We haven't even gotten to when we haven't even gotten to the stage at which they're being applied in those sectors, but in general, you can imagine in certain highly regulated sectors in which quantum computing might be used by firms, there may at some point in the future be considerations around the rules and regulation as to how they're used in maybe it's a 401k portfolio, maybe it's a Know other financial instruments and things like that, and I don't want to pick on the banking sector in particular, but you know that's that's one example. Of, I think of how regulators might, in the far future, have to think a little bit, think a little bit more about these issues.
0: So, for both of you, what should the U.S. be doing now to deal with quantum? Both to prepare for a point where it will be more widely used—that's some ways down. But for the things we face now, where you know, you have quantum simulators, you have cooperation with Germany, you have, there's a set of policy issues around quantum now. What should the U.S. be doing?
1: I think there are a number of things um, that we should be doing. You know, we should, we we talked about the importance of workforce development and education. And that is uh, one area where we're already, you know, through NSF, MIST, you know, even industry, we're collaborating and, and you know, Doing some programs to address that. A lot more is needed in that area. We need to build a supply chain and a secure supply chain for quantum computing. The NQI included, for example, the establishment of the Quantum Economic Development Consortium, whose mission is to grow the quantum economy in the, you know, and, and develop that supply chain. And so, this is a great start. We should support efforts like that. And then, look, you know development of technologies is I, I always say that is aided by early use testing feedback. And so I think that the us needs to become an early adopter of the technology. I make sure that at any point in time you have you know the the best of the technology that you make it accessible to a broad range of people, so that because it evolves faster. Through that loop of, of testing and feedback. It, it helps to accelerate the development of the technology. And also we should not forget that there's still a lot of fundamental research that needs to be done, you know, both in theory, in hardware, in software. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we should still explore the development of even like novel qubits, right? Like improve the quality of the operations in those qubits, optimize the circuits, you know, in terms of software compilation. Like there's a lot of fundamental research that, that still needs to be done. And tighten that relationship between industry and government and academia. I, I think that's, that's very important that those partnerships are, are put in place and that they're focused. You know, on, on understanding where the technology is, where we need to go, what our set of milestones that that we're going to achieve, really focused investments
0: before Ryan Ryan picks up this topic, IBM lets people access quantum services, right online, and who do you see using it? Is it the research community? is it government? Mm-hmm. I think someone told me that you got a surprisingly high level of demand for it's more than a simulator, like it's really online quantum services.
1: Yeah, we have about over 20 quantum computers available. We make them available to people through the cloud, so they can access that from wherever you are. You only need an internet connection, your computer, and you can use hardware, like quantum actual quantum computers uh, through the IBM cloud. It's been used by academia. It's been used by government labs it's been used by industry. So there's there's a lot of demand from starting to learn how to program in quantum computers to education. So there are some universities that are using the IBM Quantum for Educators program to help them develop curricula and help them make quantum computers available for their students in their class and teach them how to use quantum computers and teach them about, about the technology. They, you know There's people that use them to learn about benchmarking and then you have industries that are using them to understand how their own operations how their industry can benefit from quantum computers where they can you know where they can use them in their process and what type of algorithms they can use and how those algorithms not only they can apply them but and, and map their problem and study their problems in quantum computers but also how they're scaling you have a, a wide variety of organizations and an interest, things that
0: they're doing. Ryan, what's the, the prescription for the US on quantum?
2: I think Zaira did a pretty good job covering most of the waterfront. Um, I think the only thing that uh, I would add is, I, I do think we're at a stage, even though you know it's still early in quantum's lifecycle development, we are at a stage where standards development organizations and governments need to start thinking very seriously about accelerating both the development and the adoption of quantum-safe cryptographies. You know, in particular, there are probably large set sort of standards out there that could do with some some updating. So I, I think of basic sort of security architecture standards, frameworks, things like you know COVID and things that deal with general IT management governance. These are the sorts of things that I think we're at a stage where we can start thinking about how exactly it is we do this. NIST is in the process of choosing the winners of its uh, PQC, its post quantum cryptography competition. Getting governments to focus on this uh, as an early issue in quantum policy, I think is important. And of course, doing it in a way that isn't necessarily sounding alarm bells, right? Because as Zahir has pointed out, I mean, we're not we're we're not you know on you know on the edge of the cliff here, but there is a perennial problem in sort of the emerging technology policy space that academics refer to as the pacing problem. And it's this idea that law and policy improve and evolve incrementally and linearly, whereas technological progress tends to be much more logarithmic. And so the gap between the two tends to grow as time goes on. And so having the government focusing on this as a major policy priority early on isn't a way of basically crying wolf. It's a way of trying to get ahead the inevitable growth in that gap as time moves on. So I think apart from that, plus one to everything Zaira said, especially on sort of the international collaboration front. Again, we don't have everything and everyone we need on the quantum information science side here in the US. And you know, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that everyone maybe wants to come here, right? So it's about leveraging networks and relationships, you know, worldwide with, with governments and partners everywhere to sort of advance, you know, the common understanding of quantum information science.
0: So the question then would be collaboration is important. What are the formal mechanisms for that? Do, For example, the European Union feels very strongly that we should create, and the U.S. has agreed, this technology and trade council—it's got a little overweighted on the trade side, but it clearly has a technology focus. Would you put quantum in by itself? Would you do it as an emerging technology, Zaira? What else would you do to build collaboration? And Ryan, you know, when you look at this, what are the mechanisms you think are most useful? You know, now that this administration should do.
2: Yeah. So yeah, the uh, you know technology trade council that you know Secretary Raimondo and. Commissioner Vestager, uh, just sort of agreed to in the recent summit. I think is is a great step forward. You know, it, we we do at some point I think run the risk of you know, people treating these as just sort of like additional international multi-stakeholder fora, where people I think over time kind of I don't want to say they lose interest, but we have a lot of different forums internationally that we can use to currently advance these conversations. I think the value of the technology trade council, in particular, however is its focus on emerging technologies and yes you know there's the digital trade component to to it as well which overweighted is maybe in some folks opinions but you know in, in general having an international forum that is specifically geared towards these types of technologies i think is the most reasonable next step in trying to foster greater collaboration here and make up for maybe some of the uh, the the slack that had emerged in, in recent years and trying to get us all back to a point of general comedy on these issues.
1: I think other of the things that are uh, very advantageous of, of having that sort of international agreements is that it's a forum for for us to work together and on on issues like, you know, we, we talked about the importance of building a secure supply chain. Right? That that's an international effort. So, how do we work together to define what that looks like? Brian mentioned earlier regulations. What does it entail to make sure that we have ethical use of te- emerging technologies? And so I think that it shouldn't be only to answer the question, should it be separate like quantum? I I think it should not necessarily, you know. I think like you know, there are some issues around emerging technologies, ethical use of them is being one that go beyond just quantum computing. And also quantum computing, you know, we mentioned the interaction of quantum and AI. So there is a lot of synergy between all, all these things. You know, Quantum computing is not something that you're going to deploy alone. It's always going to be working hand-in-hand hand with classical computers. So I think it's, it's something that you know, goes, uh, some of these issues goes across the board. And then you know, we can work together in, you know, to define you know, uses. For example, You know, the the education aspect, we talked about how that is an international effort as well.
0: Great. So last question, it's mandatory if you work at CSIS. China, let's do a little comparison here. It doesn't have to be particularly deep. Where does China have advantages in quantum computing? Where does it have disadvantages? Is is it roughly the, the same? How do we, you have to, the Chinese and the Europeans are always measuring themselves against the U.S., Increasingly, the US. measures itself against China. So where would you measure China on this, both from a governance perspective and from a research perspective?
1: You know, we know that the that the government has made it a priority right to uh, advance their capabilities in technology. So you know the investments have been pretty impressive in in the field. So we know that you know the the efforts are there, the interests are there, the money and the investments are there. There is a lot of act- there's been a lot of activity in comparison to previous years. You know, I I think in, in terms of publications and patents. So there's a lot also of, of work that is happening and is showing in their publications, in in their patents, in their presence in conferences and so on, in the startups. As well. You know, there's been an increase in, in the number of startups that are involved in different aspects of the end-to-end stack mm-hmm. of, of quantum computing in recent years.
2: Yeah, I mean it's you know, again, it's it's a good question and it's it's a tough question, right? Because you know, I, I think the United States, I don't want to say we've come late to the quantum game because we, we certainly haven't, but in terms of high-level government focus on these issues, I I, I do think we're we were you know, in years past, a little bit behind the Chinese. But, you know, I, I think ultimately the strength that we have to leverage here is that international cooperation, piece, right? And China is, you know, as it is largely doing in the AI space, it's kind of, it's going it alone. It has a lot to leverage. It has a large pool of human capital. It has a large pool of human talent within that capital pool. But the pieces for quantum here are spread out as we've we've sort of regularly been talking about. So I think the strength that the U.S. can ultimately leverage, in addition to sort of focusing more R&D investment in the basic science in this space, is just leveraging the relationships we have with countries around the world that want to work collaboratively. With us, and I, I think that's that's probably a challenge that China faces that people don't talk enough about in this space. So, if the question is is ultimately kind of butting up against uh, you know whether or not we should be worried about where the Chinese are in their development of quantum computing and, and quantum sciences, I would say. Maybe not so much as as we think, or maybe not as much as certain headlines would tell us, because I think we've got a lot of strengths that we can leverage that they can't, and uh, those optimistic stories tend to not make page one of uh, the newspaper. So
0: <laughs> you noticed I'm not going to touch that one since it's one of my pet hobby horses. So. well, yeah. never mind. I said I wouldn't touch it, so I won't we've covered <laughs> we've covered a lot of ground, and this has been a great podcast, but. I have two questions for you. The first is, what are you working on now? What is it that's actually on your desk that relates to quantum? On my desk, it's mainly figuring out how to work better with Europeans because we need to kind of rebuild a little. The tech and trade council is a good start, and you know the IBM partnership with Germany is a good start. But what's on your desk when you, uh, you know, just quickly what? What is it you are working on? Zero, we may not understand what you are working on, but tell us anyhow.
1: <laughs> Executing on the roadmaps that that we put out there the team. Well, I mean, from a theory perspective, for me top of my mind is developing those circuits that would be needed in order to solve problems that will show an advantage either for science or for an industry problem. And studying What are the efficient ways of correcting for errors in these machines and how do we implement them and how do they perform? So those are two things. Great.
0: Ryan, how about you?
2: Yeah, I mean, on on my plate, quantum related is it's primarily about keeping the inertia going on the outputs from things like the National Quantum Initiative Act. So Trump administration had a lot of focus on this, in part because of some high profile people in the administration, like like Michael Kratzios and others, who kind of made this a Priority issue for themselves. Uh, with those <laughs> folks gone, keeping keeping the ball rolling on this is mostly where my attention is. But honestly, the vast majority of my attention uh, is is basically exactly where yours is, Jim. Except in the AI space, it's trying to promote transatlantic cooperation on on all things AI, and uh, you know maybe uh, mending some of the the bridges that have, have gone without repairs in in recent memory. So that's that's where almost 100 of my attention is.
0: Zaira, Ryan, thank you so much for doing this great podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.